Welcome to Beside the Burn for Monday the 10th of May 2021. Thanks for joining with us at the start of another week of our Bible studies in the book of James asking how do we cope with James and this week our theme is believing. We're asking how do we cope with believing? What does belief in Jesus Christ mean for us in our daily lives? How does it control the way that we think, the things that we say and the things that we do. And that's what we're going to be finding out as we look at James chapter 2. We're going to work through all of the chapter this week, Monday to Thursday. And then on Friday, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount and see how uh, the verses in chapter 2 link in with that sermon. Now, if you've been with us uh, so far on this study, uh, you'll know the themes that James has been talking about. If you haven't been with us, go back and uh, look through uh, the various studies and the Sunday services just to catch up with where we are. The main theme in James is all about trials. How do we cope with trials? How do we get through them? What's the purpose of them in our lives? And linked in closely with that, some of the trials, some of the tests that we go through are about wisdom, knowing when to speak and when to listen and knowing uh, how not to become angry in our lives. And then one of the other themes that we look at is the testing of wealth, what our attitude is to possessions, how we treat the rich and the poor. And so far in chapter 1, we looked at the trials, the wisdom and the wealth. And James then repeated those again towards the end of chapter 1. And now over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at these themes again. This time James expands on them a little and he goes in reverse order. So after twice going through the trials, wisdom, wealth, Now he's going back to wealth and he's spending all of chapter 2 on wealth and what that means for us as believers. I said yesterday on the Sunday service that it's really like having a little pinprick of blood and that blood being tested to tell us what's going on in the rest of our bodies. That how we treat those who have money and don't have money is an indication as to what's going on in the rest of our lives. It shows us clearly what we believe and why we believe. So, so far, James has really only very briefly touched on wealth. So we're going to have a whole chapter based on it and this idea of not showing favoritism. In other words, don't show prejudice, don't discriminate. And this was a problem that James obviously saw in the church. It was something that was worth writing about. It was something that he was going to take a whole chapter on because he saw people discriminating depending on how much people, how how many possessions, how much money people had. And it all links in with Leviticus 19 and verse 15. Leviticus 19 and verse 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And that was the instruction that was given to the Israelites. And that's really what James is saying today. So he begins in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. And here, um, the idea that uh, James is putting forward to us is that this is all based on us believing in Jesus Christ. We are believers in Jesus Christ. And that's who he's writing to. And the question that's being asked here, I suppose, if you want to put it in other words, is are you really trying to combine faith in Jesus Christ, our glorified Lord, with the worship of rank? In other words, are you really going to show favoritism whenever you're trusting in Jesus Christ? And believers here, us and our belief and what we're thinking about this week as to how we cope with believing, this is what makes all the difference here is faith in Jesus. 
our faith is the thing that's being tested here. It's our faith that is in doubt because of the way that we've lived our lives and at times have shown to others that we have little to no faith. And this isn't a question of not just being able to, to, to believe in something, not, not being able to have enough faith to be able to cling on to our salvation. This is at the very crux of the matter, that we really have no understanding of the gospel if we're showing favoritism. So Jesus is always faithful and we are the ones whose faith is called into doubt. It's interesting here that James refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second time in the letter that Jesus has been mentioned. And it's the last time that Jesus is mentioned. He's mentioned right at the very beginning in verse 1, where there's the greeting from James. But here he's mentioned again, and then he's not mentioned at all through the rest of the letter. Now, that doesn't mean to say that he's not implicitly in each of the verses, in each of the chapters. It's also an indication that although Jesus may not be mentioned, everything that we're studying here points to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace that Jesus offers us. And Jesus here is referred to as our glorious Lord Jesus. And this glorious, I suppose, links into the glory of the presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament that we see in the tabernacle and the temple and the Holy of Holies, where the glory of the Lord shone around because his presence was there, making it clear that James believes Jesus is God and his glory comes with him. And we're told here very clearly that we must not show favoritism. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to be showing favoritism? Well, James gives an illustration in verse 2. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man and filthy old clothes also comes in. He sets up this contrast here. The contrast is the poor man and he's identified uh, by his clothing, whereas the, the rich man is identified by his gold ring and his fine clothes. And what we're seeing here is man's glory and the lack of man's glory being contrasted with the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, James is setting up for us here Mr. Goldring, who's showing off his wealth by uh, what he's wearing and how he's acting. And the the shabby clothes of the poor man, the the filth here, is really showing us uh, the, the moral filth as well as just the physical filth here that we're not to look down upon those who do not fit into our perfect idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in verse 3 then we see that if you show special attention, well, that is favoritism by showing special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes, Mr. Goldring, and say, here's a good seat for you, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And that is the point. That is what it means to show favoritism. But also, Look at where the problem begins. Because in verse 3 here we're told that if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man you stand there, have you not discriminated among yourselves? And what what has James just been telling us in the previous chapter? He's saying that we need to be slow to speak. And here we are speaking And we're causing problems. The speaking is showing the discrimination and the favoritism. So we need to be careful whenever we speak. 
And um, th- this was this was brought home to me. I've got to thank Doreen Anderson this week because Doreen phoned me just as I was beginning to pr- uh, prepare this and she shared some notes that she'd written in her Bible. And it was all about this idea of saying and our speech. And we're going to see as we go right down through this chapter, the number of times that say is mentioned, that the problems are all connected with our saying. So we need to be careful what we say. And we're told here, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges? We have become judges with evil thoughts. And this is not a good criteria for judging. If you are going to judge, you've got to have good thoughts, clear thoughts, pure thoughts. And yet that's not the type of judging we're doing. In fact, we are taking on God's role because God is the one who is to be judge. And look also here about the the contrast between the rich and the poor and the good seat and the poor seat. Look, here's a good seat for you, but the poor person sit on the floor by my seat. Here, come close to me. Here's a good seat. You stand there, go away. There's this contrast between the good and the bad, the rich and the poor, the discrimination, the favoritism that we're showing. And we therefore discriminate or we judge when God is the only one who should be doing this. So there's a lot in these first four verses that really set us up for the rest of the study. But do spend some time thinking about what we say and the words we use and the way that we speak to others that clearly points out the fact that we are discriminating and we're showing favoritism. So let's buy in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not one who discriminates. In fact, you choose the poor. And so, Lord, we pray that we might not be discriminating and deciding who deserves the gospel, but that we might be sharing that good news with everyone that we meet and we might be allowing your Holy Spirit to go and to speak into hearts. So, Lord, help us not to show favoritism, help us not to discriminate, but help us to say the right things, the loving and caring things that need to be said. Lord, help us day by day to live lives that are worthy of you, that we might believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and not show favoritism. Amen. Welcome to Beside the Burn for Tuesday the 11th of May. We're continuing our series in the book of James and we're asking this week, how do you cope with believing? Because right at the start of chapter 2, James is talking to all those who believe in the glorious Lord Jesus. And we need to remember that throughout this whole book, although Jesus isn't mentioned that much, Everything is centred around Jesus, around his teaching, around what he wants from us. And as we'll see towards the end of the week, once again, there are links with the Sermon on the Mount and that sermon that Jesus preached. So today we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 13 in James chapter 2. Um, we're going to be looking primarily at this idea of not showing favouritism and why it's wrong to show favouritism. On Sunday, we just looked very briefly at the three reasons that uh, James gives as to why we shouldn't show favouritism. And today we're going to look at those verses in a little bit more detail, delve into them a bit uh, and tease out why favouritism is such a, a bad thing for Christians to show and also why it impacts our belief in Jesus Christ. Because if we believe in Jesus, then the actions that we show shouldn't be um, favourites, shouldn't have favourites for others. So let's go into the passage together. Let's look at uh, verses 5 uh, to 7. Uh, and let's see why favouritism is wrong. And what we're going to see first of all in this first section, in verses 5 uh, to 6, uh, really the first part of verse 6, and then uh, we'll, we'll look at the rest of it, is that it's favoritism is inconsistent w- with God's choice of the poor. God chooses poor people. 
So listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. So here we start off with an interesting word. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. James has already told us that we should be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. And here's the listening aspect. In the first few verses, we were thinking about uh, being slow to speak once again. But here, we're back to listening again. And he's saying, look, be quick to listen. This is what you need to listen to. Listen up and, and hear um, what God is saying. That speaking gets us into trouble in that we've been saying to the rich, come here. We've been saying to the poor, go there. We've been discriminating against each other. But now we are to listen to what is being said and make sure that we understand it. So listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen? And this is the idea of election. And election is a strong theological theme that runs throughout the Bible. But it basically means that God chooses, God elects people into salvation with him. And what we're told here by James is God has chosen the poor. And he has chosen those who are poor. And it's very important that we see here that they are poor in the eyes of the world. So they're not necessarily poor, but whenever the world looks at them, that's the category that the world places in them. Oh, they are poor. And the implication is that whenever someone is poor, they're looked down upon, they're disadvantaged, they may be discriminated against. But God turns things around. And that's what we often find in the Bible, that God turns the world's views upside down. What the world values, God doesn't always value. And the things that God values, very seldom does the world value them. So God turns things upside down, inside out. And here he's saying there are people who are poor in the eyes of the world, but they are rich. They're rich in faith. And not only are they rich in faith, but they're going to inherit something. So right now, they look poor, but they're rich because of their faith. But they're also looking ahead to the time whenever they will inherit the kingdom that he has promised. And he's promised it not to poor people, but he's promised it to those who love him. So it's not just poor, being poor that makes you um, receive these things from God. It's the fact that you love him. That's the key point. But what happens is that poor people tend to be the people who will trust in God because they don't have anything of themselves to trust in. Rich people find it very difficult to trust in God because they've got so much themselves and rely so much upon themselves. So it's the person who loves God. Now, of course, there are poor people who don't love God and there are rich people who do love God. This is not a blanket statement just differentiating between poor and rich. But what God is warning us to do is don't write somebody off because they're poor. Look to the poor because the poor are the very people that God has chosen. And so therefore, if you want to show favoritism, don't use the rules of the world. Use God's rule. And see what he says. So they're rich in faith. And uh, basically our ways are not his ways. And what God warns us here is. That we do the opposite of what God does. God blesses. And yet we dishonour the poor. We, some translations have the word insult the poor. So we dishonour them. We insult them. But God blesses them and promises them an inheritance. The second reason then, if we move into the second half of verse 6 and, and then into verse 7, second reason why we shouldn't show favoritism is because it's not consistent with the way that the rich live their lives. The rich 
often. And again, we can't have a blanket statement, but basically James is saying, look, in experience of the church in this day, it would appear that the rich are are against God in the way that they live and they speak and the things that they do. They will exploit you as a Christian. So why would you try to get their favour? It, it makes no sense whatsoever. So James continues in the second half of verse 6, Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And here we see this idea of dragging into court. Why are the rich people dragging these Christians into court? Well, we're not told the reason, but it could be to uh, get money from them. Maybe they owe them uh, money and there are debts that have mounted up. And so the rich are taking them to court to force them to pay this money that they can't afford to pay. Maybe they're trying to take their land off them and uh, they're trying to get more and more from them. And so therefore, whenever the rich person walks in, the very person who's been taking them to court, who's been insulting them and dishonouring them, why would you show favouritism to them? Now, this is a caricature, as it were, and it's very easy to, to look with James here and say, how, how silly could you be? And yet it's the very thing that we will do. We'll listen to the person who has the wealth. We'll listen to the person who has the power. And we'll maybe sideline the person who doesn't have so much. And yet God is telling us not to choose the rich person because they're rich. Because quite often they are the ones who will be going against God. And the conduct of the rich leaves a lot to be desired. Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And I think this is something that is happening in society more and more and more. And we as Christians are letting it slip past us. We're, we're not speaking out when people are blaspheming the name of God, whenever they're taking his name in vain, whenever they're cursing, using the name of our glorious Lord Jesus and just turning him into a swear word, whenever they're taking God's name in vain, whenever they're dishonouring God and blaspheming against him, and we almost accept it as the norm in today's society. And that's quite a, a sad state of affairs that we no longer have the glorious Lord Jesus as we find at the start of chapter 2 because we're siding with those who are blaspheming. Third reason why uh, we shouldn't show favouritism is found in verse 8 and uh, verses 8 to, to 11. Uh, if you really keep the law the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So James is saying, don't show favouritism because it's inconsistent with the greatest commandment or the, the royal law as he refers to it here. Remember whenever Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love your neighbour as yourself. Um, or he said, love the Lord your God um, with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And James is saying, well, if you're going to love your neighbour as yourself, don't show favouritism because you're, you're discriminating, you're picking out, you're choosing one person over another. And it's important that, that we don't do that. Whenever we love our neighbour as ourselves, then we're doing right. That's what God wants us to do. But if we show favouritism, sin is the result. So sinning against God by showing favouritism to others it is a terrible state for any Christian to be in. So we need to make sure that we don't do that. And the, the key thing is that James is saying here, look, favouritism may only be a little sin in your eyes. It's not up there, as we'll see in a moment, with murder and with adultery. But 
if you break this one little command of favouritism, well then you might as well have murdered and committed adultery because you've broken the law. So he talks about this idea of favouritism as stumbling. Now, if you murder someone or commit adultery, that is a full-blown fall. That is a horrendous sin to commit. But James here is saying, okay, favoritism may just be like stumbling. You, you've just tripped slightly. You've stayed upright. You've kept going, but something happened there. And he's saying, well, even if you stumble with a little bit of favoritism, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. And he goes on then in verse 11 to say, for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. If you don't commit murder and adultery, but you show favoritism, again, you are a lawbreaker. So there are the reasons why we shouldn't show favoritism. And we've still got a couple more verses to, to, to read today. Verses 12 and 13. Uh, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James here is telling us that we are one day going to be judged for our actions and this is this whole idea of faith and deeds and how the two things fit together and James is saying you're going to be judged for your actions and this judgment the only way to come through the judgment is by mercy so judgment and mercy are connected together we keep thinking no matter how much we hear about grace and what Jesus has freely offered us, we still go back to this idea that we can earn our way out of judgment by doing good things and by doing the right thing, then we can avoid judgment. But James here tells us that's not the case. The only way to get through judgment is by mercy, the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that mercy will be shown to will not be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. We need to be merciful to others so that Christ's mercy will be shown to us. And then we have this wonderful statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think that would be a great way, a great slogan for us to live our lives by day by day. Because that statement reminds us whenever we're tempted to judge others, that it's mercy that's the most important thing. If Jesus came only with judgment, then we would be doomed because he would take one look at our lives, he'd see everything that we'd done, and he would judge us. Now, let's look at our own lives. Whenever we look at others, we can very easily become self-righteous and we can judge others so, so easily. Especially, I think, maybe over this past year of lockdown, where we've got ourselves into the, the, the situation where perhaps we're keeping the regulations and we're trying to do everything right, and then we see someone that has stepped outside of the regulations and we immediately condemn them. Now, I know there's arguments for this because we're trying to look after as many people as possible. We're trying to do the greater good. We want people to follow the regulations so that everyone's kept safe. I understand that. But there is an issue where we just condemn everyone. We judge every little action that we see. And I've fallen into it myself at times. And we need to be able to show mercy. That yes, we want the right thing to be done. Yes, we want to encourage people to do the right thing. But we need to realise that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is what breaks down barriers. Mercy is what attracts people to Jesus Christ. Mercy and forgiveness and grace and love are the things that attract us to a saviour who brings us salvation. Whereas judgment is the thing that brings fear. And whenever we judge, we need to make sure that we also balance that with an offer of mercy and grace. 
And so I think this statement, mercy triumphs over judgment, would be a good one just to write down somewhere prominent that we see it, that we maybe underline it in our Bibles, we maybe highlight it so that we notice it day by day and we see what God wants us to do and how he wants us to care for others and show mercy for others. So we've had a lot to get through today. There's been a lot of detail in those particular verses. Uh, Let's turn to God in prayer and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that you've given us this very simple command not to show favouritism. And yet, Lord, we see how that impacts the way that we live our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who comes in judgment but who brings mercy. And we thank you for this wonderful promise that mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, help us to be merciful to others. Help us to share your great mercy with others, that they would come and realise that there is a way to avoid judgment, a way that involves looking to you and trusting in you. So, Lord, we thank you today for your mercy. We thank you for your righteousness. And we pray that you would help us to live lives with you each day, relying on your mercy for all that we need. Amen. Welcome to Beside the Burn for Wednesday, the 12th of May, 2021. We're continuing looking at the book of James. And today it is how do you cope with believing as we look at James chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 14 and we're going to work our way down to verse 19 today. And there's a lot to fit in again. Yesterday's uh, we maybe took a bit too long to go through everything. So I'll try and uh, speed things up a little bit. But uh, there's so much in these verses uh, that it's incredible uh, what God can teach us uh, and what God can say to us. Now today is... James moves on to this theme that I suppose James is famous for. If you were to ask what is the book of James about, many people would would plump and say it's all about the connection between faith and deeds. And this idea that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, that needs to be shown through the deeds that we act out day by day, that you can't have faith without deeds. And yet there are many who live their lives claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, not doing anything that would show that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so James tackles this issue. And we've just been uh, looking in the opening few verses of chapter 2, all about how we treat those who are poor and those who are rich. And it would almost appear in verse 14 that we're moving to a new subject. But in actual fact, we're continuing on that idea of not showing favoritism, of making sure that we're treating the rich and the poor the same. But it fits in with faith and deeds and what James is saying here. So let's begin by looking at verse 14 and 15. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And then we'll move on to verse 16 in a moment, which uh, carries on with that. So what good is it? What What is the point Why would you want faith without deeds? Because to James, it makes no sense whatsoever to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ but not do anything about it. It is madness. What good is it? Um, And he says here, my brothers and sisters. Now, throughout the letter, most of the time, uh, James uses the word for brothers. Now, he uses it in an inclusive way, in that he's not just talking about men, he is always talking about the whole assembly of brothers and sisters. And therefore, in some translations, you will get brothers and sisters used because it is an inclusive term speaking to everyone. But in this particular occasion, James actually uses the word for sisters as well. It's not just as one word, he actually uses both of them. So whenever they're translated, it just looks the same. But I think he's using the word explicitly for sisters here because he's moving on to talk about the deeds, the actions that we have to those who um, are disadvantaged in society. And quite often in that day, it was the women who were disadvantaged. 
It was a woman who were poor. It was a woman who needed help. And so he specifically says, brothers and sisters. And he needs to make sure that that point is made clear. So if someone claims, and here again, it's this idea of speaking. And it's the speaking that gets us into trouble. We are to be slow to speak. But if you're quick to speak, and if you claim to have faith, but you don't have deeds, what good is it? It does nobody any good. What is the point of it? So um, Doreen uh, spoke to me uh, towards the end of last week about these verses and about some notes that she had taken um, in um, previous sermons that she'd read. And, and it was this idea of claiming the speaking coming out that, that became clear as I was speaking to Doreen. And we can claim anything. But deeds back up the claim. But it's also important that uh, we don't just do things, but that we have something to back them up as well. So whenever we're doing things, we need to be able to speak to back up what we're doing. So the two things go hand in hand. So suppose a brother or sister is without clothes uh, and daily food. And here we have this combination uh, used once again of brother or, or sister. And they are the ones who are disadvantaged. And here we have this idea of uh, daily food. And it's a link uh, to the um, Lord's Prayer. If someone doesn't have daily bread, then other believers are at fault because they're not praying for them and they're not, they're not providing for that person. So we should make sure that we provide. So let's move on to verse 16 then. If one of you says to them, go in peace, Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So here James uses that phrase again. What good is it that he just used at the beginning of verse 14? What's the point? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You can't just go and say well-meaning spiritual terms. Go in peace. Keep warm. Well-fed. You have to back that up with action. And I think perhaps this is one of the problems that we have as Christians. We are very quick to speak but we are slow to act. And that goes for many, many things in society. There are lots of things I could point at today. Just one that is in the news headlines at the moment, and I'm not just singling this out. It's just something that we need to think about in the current abortion debate. We're very quick to speak out and to say, how we think that abortion is wrong and how it goes against God's word. But we're very slow to act. A few people will act in that they will go and they will protest at clinics. And there is a protest going on in the clinic in, in Coleraine on a Wednesday whenever that's open. But we're very slow to act in a loving and a caring way to provide an alternative for those women who feel that their only option is abortion. We're very slow to provide them with care and support and help. We're very slow to show love and understanding to them. But we're very quick to judge. And mercy triumphs over judgment. The care and compassion triumphs over the judgment. So here's what James is telling us and how we're to react to it. So we shouldn't just have spiritual phrases because we might as well just say to them goodbye and good luck and get on with your life. We need to back it up with what we what we say. We need to back it up by what we do. And that is important. And, um, and again, it's the saying that's getting us into bother here. Just previously, if someone claims to have faith here, if one of you says go in peace, so... It's important that we watch what we say and we are careful about what we do. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This idea of faith by itself. Now, this is not a contradiction from James of what Paul teaches about faith alone. Um, James has to say by itself here, 
because he assumes that faith is accompanied by action. So whenever he says by itself, he's making this distinction. He assumes action. Whenever Paul talks about deeds, he is quite often talking about spiritual deeds that people are doing to claim that they have faith. For example, maybe circumcision and keeping the law and all those things. If you do those things like a Pharisee, then that proves your faith or even gains you faith. And Paul is saying, no, it's faith alone. It's not these things. So that's the slight distinction that we have here. And then as we read on into verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So here we have this idea of saying again, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And it's important that it's not just a matter of saying that we do actually do the things, that our faith is not dead. And even just saying it isn't enough because James tells us here that even the demons believe. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And the, the demons know who God is and they shudder that this is the action that they that comes out of their belief. Their action is trembling, violent shaking, because all faith results in some action. Even if it is deciding not to do something, that is a decision. And here are these demons, they believe in God, but they are trembling and in fear of him. And so it's important that we do the right thing. You believe that there's one God, that is good, but there's more to it. You need to live it out and you need to act it out. So let's come to God in prayer today and ask that he would help us and he would guide us. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we can put our faith in you. We thank you that you are the God who is trustworthy and true. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would strengthen our faith and help us to place more trust in you in more areas of our lives. Help us not to confine our faith to a Sunday, but help us to live it out each day of our lives. Help us, Lord, not to be like the demons who believe in you, but do nothing about it. Help us to live out our faith day by day. Help us not just to speak, Lord, but help us to act in ways that will draw others to you so that they will know that you are the God who loves them. So, Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Beside the Burn for Thursday the 13th of May. Thanks for joining with us this week as we've been working our way through James chapter 2 asking how do you cope with believing? And all of this second part of the chapter has been about the relationship between faith and deeds. How do we believe in Jesus Christ and how does that impact how we live our lives out? In the first half we saw that that was all about not showing favouritism to others and now we're seeing how our actions link into that faith that we have. And today in verses 20 to 26 of James chapter 2, James is looking at two great heroes of the faith, two people that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, that great chapter of the heroes of the faith, and two people who help us understand this relationship between trusting in God and yet acting it out. And James picks Abraham and Rahab, maybe uh, Abraham would be one of the ones that we would choose and we would um, uh, hold up as an example. Rahab, however, perhaps not the one that we would go to if we had everyone in the Old Testament to choose from. And yet these are the two people that James picks. And it's important that we look at their lives and see what he's saying. So let's look at verse 20 and 21. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So look at uh, the, the passion that James has here. He's saying you are a foolish person. If you 
think that you can have faith without action, you are foolish. There's no, there's no other argument to be made here. I mean, how silly can you be? And he's, he's saying you're foolish and faith without deeds is also foolish. This is a, a similar word that's used here. The person's foolish, the action is useless. Uh, and the two uh, are, are linked together here. This word foolish person is also, can be translated an empty person. You've got no substance to you if you're not living out your life and you're not uh, acting upon your faith. Do you want more evidence? He's asking, do you want more evidence? Well, if you want more evidence, I can give you evidence. I can give you evidence in two people. The first is Abraham and the second is Rahab. And if you want this, then um, this is uh, the evidence is here. Also, this word useless, it's a little bit like a, a, a pun that um, James is using here. If you were to uh, literally try to get the pun to work in English, you would say that this was workless. These works are workless. Uh, they're, they're useless. So he, he's linking us in and trying to get us to see just how important this is. So he asks a question that uh, he's expecting the answer. Yes, was not our father Abraham considered righteous? Well, yes, of course he was considered righteous. But he was considered righteous because of what he did. None of us can look inside Abraham's heart and see what his motivation was. But we can look at his actions and we can see what his faith is. So he was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And remember last week we were thinking about being righteous. How do we cope with being righteous? Here is Abraham coping with being righteous by doing what um, God is asking him to do and Abraham was willing to act upon his faith and he was willing to take Isaac build the altar tie up his son and then he was willing to lift the knife and to plunge it into Isaac Abraham had worked out that God was all-powerful and therefore if Abraham killed Isaac God could raise him from the dead and as we're told in Hebrews he did indeed raise him from the dead because Abraham had been willing to kill him, and yet God intervene, intervened and protected him. So let's move on to verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. So here we have this whole idea of faith and actions. They're working together. And his faith, his actual trust in God was made complete by what he did. That it was brought to maturity. His faith was growing through his actions. And that's an important aspect that we show faith to be real by what we do. But then that faith also develops. It grows. Faith isn't mature until we act upon it. And it's the way that we develop our faith. If we just trust in Jesus and then leave our lives there, then that faith isn't developing. That faith isn't strengthening. So whenever we face the trials and the tests and the troubles later on, we have very little to hold us and to keep us firm. But if we trust in Jesus and then start acting upon it and living it out day by day, that faith is strengthened, it is made complete, it is brought to maturity. And therefore, we're able to cope with more and more of the problems that come our way. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So Abraham believed, that's his faith, and that was his righteousness. It wasn't the acts that made him righteous, it was the belief. 
But then because he was righteous, he was able to do the right thing. And that is important. And again, the righteousness is what is linking all of this together. And we see it. Um, verse 21 was Abraham was considered righteous. Here he it's credited to him as righteousness. And we'll see again in verse 25 that Rahab was considered righteous. So this whole idea of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives comes about through faith that then is linked to our actions. And each little bit of this is brought together and held together. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So somebody can claim to have faith. They can say they have faith. We can look at them and wonder if they have faith. But we can't really tell how righteous they are unless they're doing something. And that's where it links in. And that's why it's important that we look at that. That we are considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This idea of being considered righteous is uh, sometimes translated as being justified. And we often talk about the idea that whenever we first trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of our sins, at that point we are justified before God. It is just as if we have never sinned. And here that is translated as considered righteous. So let's look at verses 25 and, and 26 then. In the same way was not even Rahab. So Rahab's the example now. The prostitute considered righteous. Now perhaps those are two things that we don't uh, imagine being in the same sentence. That she's called a prostitute and yet she's considered righteous. But again we see that she has faith and then she lives out that faith for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab differs in almost every way from Abraham. Abraham was wealthy, he was male, he had social standing. Rahab is poor, she's being exploited, she's female, she has no standing in the society whatsoever. But Rahab demonstrates the same faith in the same way as Abraham. She acts upon that faith and it is clear that she is therefore considered righteous. And as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And here again, we've got a, a slogan a bit like the mercy triumphs over judgment. Here we've got the faith without deeds is dead. And those two things should remind us throughout this passage as to what God wants. He wants mercy. He wants us to act merciful for others and mercy triumphs over judgment. And then faith without deeds is dead. And we need to act to show what our faith is, to keep our faith alive and to allow that faith to mature and to grow. So let's bow before God and let's ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, today as we come to you, we thank you for the blessing that you have shown each one of us. As we come to you today, Lord, we put our trust and our faith in you and we ask, Lord, that you would consider us righteous, that you would justify us in your sight today. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy rather than your judgment. And we pray that you would help us day by day to act upon our faith in ways that are merciful to others so that they might come to know you as a God of salvation rather than a God of judgment. And so, Lord, we ask all these things in and through Jesus' precious name. Amen. Welcome once again to Beside the Burn. It's Friday the 14th of May and we come to the end of another week of our studies in the book of James. We've had a lot to cover this week from chapter 2 of James and we're going to go back through the chapter now and just lift out a few verses that link into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to go into these verses in great detail because we've already done that Monday to Thursday 
But I just want to pick out these little similarities and point you in the right direction so that whenever you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, you see how James is emphasising these things and taking us back to what Jesus said. So how do you cope with believing in Jesus Christ? Well, you look at the teaching of Jesus, you look at what he says in his sermon, and you see how that uh, makes a difference in our lives. So let's look at some of the verses from James chapter 2, and then some of the verses from the Sermon on the Mount. So James 2 verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. And the key things that we're thinking about here are how God chooses the poor and how they will inherit the the kingdom that he has promised those who love him. And if we think about the Sermon on the Mount and we think about how the Sermon on the Mount begins, begins with the Beatitudes, those simple little statements of blessing and the poor are mentioned there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's almost as if James has been reading the Sermon on the Mount that morning. It's in his mind and he then wants to remind his readers about it. And he takes this blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then if we jump ahead to verses 11 and 12. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And these two commands of uh, adultery and murder are commands that Jesus takes in the Sermon on the Mount as well. So in Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then um, that those particular verses, um, Jesus is, is reminding us that we will be condemned if we do these things. Just one way that we break the law is enough to break all of the law. And so that is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if we're not merciful, then we get the full force of judgment. But if we are merciful, then God is merciful to us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, back to the Beatitudes again, for they will be shown mercy. It's this link that James puts in here between judgment and mercy. And then chapter 6, verse 15 of Matthew. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And that's a, an interesting thing because often we'll say, well, just ask Jesus for forgiveness and you'll be forgiven. But it's also linked to the way that we treat others and the way that we forgive others. If we receive the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ, but we keep hatred in our hearts and we're not prepared to forgive others, then God is not going to be so generous to us. Verse 14 of James, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And Jesus tackles this in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying exactly the same as what James has been saying. It's only those who do the will of the Father who call on his name, who will be saved. It's not just those who make a show of saying the right things. There has to be action to back it up. There has to be action to back it up. So let's give thanks today for all that God has shown us in the Sermon on the Mount, for all that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, and let's give thanks that... um, that we can have faith in Jesus and that that faith then changes our lives and impacts the way that we live our lives. So let's turn to Jesus in prayer.
Lord Jesus, at the end of this week, we have been thinking so much about putting our faith in you, believing in you and how we cope with that. Lord, help us day by day to live our lives, to obey your commands, to have deeds and actions, Lord, that back up our belief in you. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in a way that will show others what we believe, that they won't be left in any doubt about what is in our hearts, but that they will realise who you are and the difference that you can make. Lord, we thank you that in these uncertain times you are always with us. And so we do trust in you today and ask, Lord, for your continued blessing to be upon us. Help us day by day as we seek to live out your word. Help us, Lord, as we seek to honour you. Help us, Lord, in all that we do to praise your name. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.